Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not become do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let me pray. Father, we ask for you to help us um, understand this text. And Father, um, you turn on our, the lights in our heads so that we would see the truth of it, but mostly in our hearts so that we would repent and rejoice before it. Father, this, um, we confess this command to love our enemies is, is crystal clear. Um, it's just so hard to apply. Father, we ask that you would soften our hearts, that you would, if you need to, use your word as a jackhammer this morning to break up the hardness of them so that we would be able to be those kinds of people who love as you have loved us, that we would be able to be sons of our Father in heaven who loved his enemies and sent his Son to die for them. Father, we could love as you have. Pray that you would do this work in us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a man named John Perkins. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of him. He was a civil rights leader in the 70s. He uh, was a black man who dropped out of school actually in the third grade. He was raised in Mississippi most of his life until his teen years. In his teen years, he moved to California. And while in California, uh, John Perkins became a Christian. He also later became the pastor and founder of a ministry called the Voice of Calvary Ministries in Mendenhall, Mississippi. Here's what happened. John Perkins became a believer in Christ in California and then was convicted that he ought to return to Mississippi to preach to the poor black community in which he was initially raised. So he left California when he was a teenager, or he left California as an adult, went back to Mississippi, and began preaching there. While he was there on February 7, 1970, a Saturday night, um, there had been a civil rights march. After the civil rights march, a group of black college students got in a van and were driving home. On their way home, they were pulled over by highway patrolmen, at which time uh, those black college students were arrested and put in jail. John Perkins, a pastor, heard about this and took two of his friends and went to the prison to post bail. Now, mind you, John Perkins had never been arrested was not assist, resisting arrest, was not causing any commotion or problems. He went into um, the police department, asked to post bail, at which time five deputies surrounded him, several highway patrolmen, and they proceeded to beat him for the better part of the night. They beat John Perkins um, by kicking him in the head, the ribs, and the groin repeatedly. They then, one of the deputies, went over and got a fork, said, you see this fork? and he shoved it up his nose. Then he pulled the fork out and shoved it down his throat. And he was left there on the floor of the police department for dead. The students thought for sure he was dead, 
they did not know what would happen to them. It was a case, it was a case of evil in a particularly vicious, violent, racist form. Unless you think, is this story true? That sounds too horrific to be true. It must be something hatched by a group of liberals. He was actually appointed to a civil rights commission by President Ronald Reagan after this event. In spite of what happened to him, Perkins talked about the fact that this did something good for him, that this beating changed him and gave him a new vision. I want you to hear what he wrote in his own journals. I remembered their faces so twisted with hate. It was like looking at white-faced demons. For the first time, I saw what hate had done to those people. These policemen were poor. They thought, saw themselves as failures. The only way they knew how to find a sense of worth was by beating us. Their racism made them feel like somebody. When I saw that, I just couldn't hate back. I could only pity them. I said to God that night, God, if you will get me out of this jail alive, and I really didn't think I would, maybe I was just trying to bargain with him. I really want to preach a gospel that will heal these people too. Later in the hospital, he wrote this, the Spirit of God worked on me as I lay in that bed. An image formed in my mind, the image of a cross, of Christ on the cross. This Jesus knew what I had suffered. He understood, he cared, because he had gone through it all himself. He too was arrested and falsely accused. He too had an unjust trial. He too was beaten. Then he was nailed to a cross and killed like a common criminal. But when he looked at the mob who had crucified him, he didn't hate them, he loved them, and he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. His enemies hated, but he forgave. God wouldn't let me escape that. He showed me that however unjustly I had been treated, in my bitterness and hatred, I was just as sinful as those who had beaten me, and I needed forgiveness for my bitterness. Now, I relay this story to demonstrate the most fundamental point, the most fundamental point that I want to make in the sermon today, and that's this. Until we understand God's love for his enemies, and that is us, displayed on the cross, we will never, we will never love our enemies the way we are called to. Perhaps the most stunning truth about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the most stunning truth about the gospel, if you listen to it, and the most contrary to human inclinations is the love of God shown to his enemies. But God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, while we were still opposed to him, while we, we were still his enemies, God sent his son to die for us. Christ died for us. Think of this concept. The Father's love is so gracious and promiscuous that he sent his son to die for those who mocked him, beat him, killed him. Those who hated him, cursed him, persecuted him. Those who were evil toward him, he sent his son to die for them. That's how promiscuous his love is. This gratuitous love 
is the Father's nature, his perfection, and we as his sons are called, when I say sons, I mean that in a gender-inclusive way, we are his sons are called to embody the same kind of love for our enemies. Look at Matthew, keep your hand there in Romans chapter 12, and look at Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5. If you're not familiar with your Bible, there's an Old and a New Testament. The Old Testament takes about the first two-thirds of the Bible. There are 66 different books. They have names that are usually at the top of the pages. The first book in the New Testament is called Matthew. We're looking for chapter 5, which is the large number, and the small numbers we're looking for, starting in verse, starting in verse 43. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 43. Jesus is preaching here the Sermon on the Mount, in which he is telling his disciples how the law of God is to be applied. And he says this in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that, here's the purpose for doing that, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors, that's the bottom of the barrel in this society, so you know. The most sinful. Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles, that's unbelievers here, that's the irreligious people, the Gentiles. Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. See, how are sons described in this passage? They're described as those who behave as their father behaves. And how does their father behave? Their father behaves by showing love to his enemies. He says, you want to be sons of your fathers in heaven? Then love your enemies. Look, unbelievers, irreligious people, the scum of society, they are having an easy time loving those who love them. They're having an easy time loving those who are kind to them. How much more should you? That's easy. No problem. Here's where the Christian ethic of love takes a step from what is possible and normal, from what is human, to what is supernatural, to what is impossible apart from the work of God in us. When he says, you're supposed to love not only your friends, not only your brothers, not only those who love you, you're supposed to love your enemies, those who persecute you, those who come against you, who curse you, who bring harm to your life. You're supposed to love them. You're supposed to pray for their salvation. You're supposed to bless them. We say, this is the way of the cross. John Stott, a great British preacher, said that the cross is God's masterpiece of love. The Father created us to be his own people, didn't he? He created us to be his own people. Yet we, we rejected him. We despised him. We went running after our sin. And our sin made us his enemies, put us at enmity with him. Our sin did that. Our sin provoked his just judgment. Our sin <clears throat> provoked him to want to bring vengeance and wrath upon us. 
However, his love, his love provoked him to pursue our good. His love provoked him to pursue rescuing us from his own wrath. So please don't divorce the love and grace of God from the cross. What I see happening way too often in Christian circles is that we make a divorce between the grace and forgiveness and love of God and the cross and the person of Jesus Christ. We think God is out there willy-nilly just throwing grace and love around. What we don't understand is his grace arrived in a person. His name was Jesus Christ. His grace arrived in a work as Jesus lived perfectly, obeying God's law, tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. His grace arrived in a work as Jesus paid our penalty on the cross, all of God's wrath, all of God's justice being poured out on him so that when he rose from the dead, when we look to him, when we look to Jesus, we are saved from God. We're not saved just from the devil or just from some bad people. We are saved from God himself, from his wrath. God loved us enough to do that for us, to save us. We look to Jesus, we look to him, and we receive grace upon grace. We receive mercy. That's all God's work. You cannot separate the grace and love of God from Jesus and the cross. Cannot. Because once Jesus and the cross are taken out, all you have left is wrath and justice. God did all this for his enemies so that our debt would be paid in full, so that we would be counted righteous. He did that for his enemies. He crucified and killed his own son for his enemies. His enemies were participating in evil, and he overcame the evil with good, and he calls us to do the same thing. He says, you know, we were no longer his friends, and God pursued peace with us, reconciling us to himself through the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, it's the kind, this kind of love that our Father says must be present in us. This kind of love is the kind of love that follows the way of the cross, the kind of love that shows kindness to enemies. We're called to live that kind of love out with people. Loving our enemies is the rational response to the mercy God has shown us. Do you hear that? You wonder what the logical, reasonable, rational response to the mercy God has shown us in Jesus is to love our enemies. Anything else than loving our enemies is an irrational, unreasonable, illogical response to the cross. Let me be very clear, though, until we understand, until we understand the grace and mercy shown to us at the cross, we will never, we will never love our enemies the way a son of our father should. But let me tell you what that love looks like. What does the love for our enemies look like? Paul gives us three descriptors of it. So I'm going to give you three aspects of loving our enemies that appear in Romans chapter 12. Three aspects of it. So here's the first one. Look at Romans chapter 12, verse 14. Romans 12, verse 14. The first aspect. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. 
See, we're not to, or to curse those who persecute us. We're to pray for them, as Jesus says in Matthew 5, and to speak well of them. How often are we good at speaking well of those who are cursing us? At praying for their salvation. What we normally want to do is call them an a-hole or some other kind of curse that we want to throw their direction, right? But what the Scripture says is that we're to bless them, not curse them. We're to speak well of them and pray for their salvation. How well do you use your tongue with regard to people who attack and persecute you? Happens, right? In some cases, it happens in public scenarios, depending on what kind of life you have. As a person who has a life as a public figure, I'm getting cursed publicly all the time. I'm getting cursed on blogs. I'm getting cursed on the radio. I'm getting cursed in the newspaper. I'm getting cursed on TV. Websites devoted to hating me. People are cursing me. How do I respond to that? People are trying to rip me apart. This happens in your life. You have family members who do this to you. You have co-workers who are competing with you who do this to you. In some way, they may not speak ill of you directly, but they will try to find a way to tear you down to exalt themselves, don't they? Happens in your life. That, your enemy may become your spouse in your household who's doing that very thing to you. How do you respond to them? How do you respond? See, it's incredibly difficult to employ our tongues in the business of blessing people when they are in the business of attacking and cursing us. Incredibly difficult. In order to do this, um, I, I, you, you, I say this to Jared now, you have to learn to develop a thick skin, my son. Son, you have to learn to develop a thick skin and keep a soft heart. How do you, you get used to dealing with the attacks that are coming your way and your skin has to get thick, but your heart cannot get hard. Your heart has to remain soft. That is a very difficult thing to take on. We have to have a thick skin and a soft heart and it's demonstrated so well in Jesus. First Peter says he committed no sin. Jesus committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Hear that? Jesus did not seek vengeance. Jesus did not curse. Jesus did not revile in return. Jesus blessed while at the same time trusting him who judges justly. He trusted the Father to deal with this. He did not have to attack his enemies. He knew the Father would deal with judging justly. Jesus blessed others by praying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And we're to be like him and bless those who persecute us, those who attack and revile us. And we fail to do this well. I'll tell you, everybody in this room, I am certain has failed to do this well, right? It's like, I might as well give up now, right? Forget it. There's no way I'm going to ever do that well, which is why we should be so thankful that Jesus did it for us. He did it well, and that's credited to our account. Second, not only to use our tongue to bless others who persecute us, we are to be peacemakers with our enemies, we are to be peacemakers with our enemies. Look at verse 18. 
of Romans 12, verse 18. If possible, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. In the Sermon on the Mount, which I just read from earlier in Matthew 5, Jesus makes the statement, Blessed are the peacemakers. Why? For they will be called sons of God. Why are they called sons of God? For the same reason that if we love our enemies, we'll be sons of our Father in heaven. Because our Father fundamentally is a God who did what? He pursued peace with his enemies. That's what he did. He reconciled himself to us and us to himself. He pursued that. He loved his enemies. That's why when Jesus talks about being peacemakers, he talks about loving your enemies, he puts it in the context of that's what a son of the Father does. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God because our Father's a peacemaker. Because we're to be like him. God pursued peace with his enemies, and we're to do the same. So what does that look like? What does that look like? It looks like total self-sacrifice. Do you hear that? Total self-sacrifice for the sake of seeking peace and reconciliation with another person. It looks like the cross where Jesus laid down all his rights, all of them. Not some of them, not most of them, all of them. So that the Father, so that the Father could seek reconciliation with his people, with his enemies. But Paul makes two qualifications that I want to look at because there are a couple qualifications in this. If you look at verse 18, he says this first, if possible. And the second phrase, he says, so far as it depends on you. I, why does he say that? Why does he give us qualifications? Well, first, to make peace or to be at peace is sometimes not possible. Sometimes you do all you can and you're still not at peace with people. You can't get peace with them because peace has a meaning. Peace has a definition. It isn't just, let's get together, let's smoke a little, anyway, and, and let's all love, right? That's not peace, okay? Peace has a definition. What is the definition of peace? Peace is reconciliation. Peace is saying, you know what? I'm going to repent of my sins. You're going to repent of your sins against one another. We're going to confess it to each other. We're going to ask for forgiveness from one another. And we're going to be reconciled. Peace happens when two parties are committed, are committed to making, in good faith, pursuing reconciliation with each other. That's when it happens. Paul and Jesus are not saying you ought to be a doormat. They're not saying let your enemy run over you and then happily lay down in front of him again so he can do it all over again. It's not what they're saying. If the other party won't repent or work for reconciliation, there is no peace. There's none. What they are saying is that you're supposed to pursue peace. You're supposed to lay down your right for recompense, for payback. We love payback, don't we? You're supposed to lay down your right for payback to pursue peace. But if they will not engage, no peace can happen. That's why, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Live peaceably with all. Second, second thing I want to tell you about peacemaking here, the qual uh, regarding the qual qualifications. Never is peacemaking at the expense of truth or goodness. Hear that? Never is at the expense of truth or goodness. You guys ever heard of Neville Chamberlain? 
Many people have heard of Neville Chamberlain. Neville Chamberlain was the Prime Minister of Great Britain at the front end of World War II. Neville Chamberlain went and signed a peace treaty, a peace treaty with Hitler. And he came back and declared to the world, we have peace with Germany. We have peace with the Third Reich. We have peace with Hitler. However, what he did in order to attain that peace is he said, we're all going to look the other way while Hitler attacks Czechoslovakia. In other words, what we said to Hitler is, you know what? Let's not attack each other. And in order to keep you from attacking me, what I'm going to let you do is go ahead and attack Czechoslovakia. That's not peace. That isn't peacemaking. That is allowing evil to triumph and calling it peace. Jeremiah addresses this kind of false peace in Jeremiah 6 where he says this, they have healed the wound of my people lightly. Lightly, they're not taking it seriously. Saying peace, peace when there is no peace. Let's be clear. Paul Paul is not here when he says to be peacemakers, pursue peace as far as it depends on you. He is not here declaring the fact that the state needs to participate in pacifism. Hear that? If you want to make an argument for pacifism, fine. I'm not making that argument with you right now. What I'm saying is that Paul is not here declaring an argument for pacifism on behalf of the state. What Paul is talking about is the individual. He's talking about the role of the individual Christian. We do not get to attack people for recompense, for revenge. We don't. In fact, Paul says very clearly that the state in chapter 13 has the right to pursue recompense. Look at verse 4 of chapter 13, right after this. For he, speaking of the state, is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. In other words, God says, I have appointed the state, and I have given the state the sword. Why? Why does he give them a sword? It isn't to sweet-talk people. He gives them a sword to defend the state. To avenge injustice. That's why he gives them the sword. He gives that role to the state. Well, fine, okay, fine. I believe the state has that role. What about personal self-defense? See, you're saying we can't pursue revenge, we can't pursue recompense, but what about if somebody attacks me? What about personal self-defense? Doesn't Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount say that if someone slaps you on the right cheek to turn the other to him also? Doesn't he say that? Yeah. He does. What does he mean? Again, he's not talking about the state there. He's talking about the person, the individual. He's talking about them. When someone slaps you on the right cheek is a Jewish custom, so you know, the idea was if most people are, the average person is right-handed, if they slap you on the right cheek, they are backhanding you. That is considered a serious insult, not a physical attack. In other words, what Jesus is saying is when someone brings a serious insult against you, turn to him the other cheek also. He isn't talking about self-defense. He's talking about insults, not physical assault. The understanding is that the... (coughs) Let me me put it this way. If someone enters your home, okay, because I've heard it applied this way all the time. Someone enters your home and attacks your wife and children. I've heard people say to me, well, I am not to retaliate Therefore, I'm just going to pray for them and do kind things for them as they attack my wife and children. Really? That's your response? Paul isn't saying 
When someone enters your home and attacks your wife and kids, pray for them, do kind things for them, seek peace as they beat up your wife and kids. It's not what he's saying. In fact, in Luke chapter 21, Jesus tells the disciples that troubling times are coming, so trade your cloak and buy a sword. What's he talking about there? He's talking about self-defense. Not retaliation, self-defense. Not revenge, self-defense. Sell your cloak and buy a sword. Why? So you can defend yourself. Jesus tells them. In today's vernacular, if, if you're too weak and puny to take down a man who enters your house, go buy a gun. Right? Go buy a gun. So if somebody attacks you and your family, you can defend yourself. I know pastors don't normally tell you that, but I'm going to. Because <laughs> Jesus says to buy a sword. Right? We don't really carry around swords anymore. That'd be awkward if someone came in your house. Anyway, all right. <laughs> you got it. <clears throat> Jesus recognizes the validity of self-defense. What he doesn't recognize is the validity of personal retaliation. What he doesn't recognize. He doesn't recognize the validity of retaliating, of seeking revenge. He doesn't recognize that. Neither does Paul. You have no right to retaliate against someone who's insulted you. You retain the right of self-defense. And in line with, in fact, Romans chapter 13, which I'll deal with next week, Romans 13, in which I preach on church and state, because that's what Romans 13 is about, this first seven verses. In line with that, and the way Paul appealed to Caesar through the courts in the book of Acts, we know that not only do Christians have the right to self-defense, they have the right to seek legal redress through the state. Rarely are you going to be physically attacked. I mean, I'm going to put that out there. Rarely is that going to happen. Likely, you'll suffer a personal attack on your character. People will make disparaging, insulting remarks. Jesus' point is that you don't retaliate. You don't insult in return. You pray for them. You act kindly to them. If possible, as far as it depends on you, you seek peace with them. Best example of this is David. You guys know who King David is? Well, David, when he was a young man, he's in Israel's history. He first served under a king named Saul. Israel had a king named Saul, and at one point, there, the Philistines were turned against Israel, were attacking them. They had one man in particular who taunted them named Goliath. David, as a young man, raised up, slew Goliath, and was one of the, really, warriors on behalf of Israel, protecting them from the Philistine and other, Philistines and other enemies. He served King Saul well. He honored King Saul. But David continued to grow in popularity with the people. David was just a man out there trying to do what was right for his nation. But as he grew in popularity with the people, the king felt threatened. Saul felt increasingly threatened because he was the power broker for the state. No one is going to get more credit than me. And so Saul turned on David. Saul basically had him banished, pursued him, tried to have him killed. What was David's response? Well, at one point, David and his men were hiding in a cave. And Saul and his men came looking for them. And while they were outside the cave, Saul had to relieve himself, Scripture says. So he went into the cave to be polite. And he was relieving himself. And David was in that very cave. And David came up and cut off a corner of his robe. Saul left the cave. And then David went outside and presented him with the corner of the robe. And David said, see, King Saul, I, I could have killed you. 
but I love you. I'm not going to put my hands on the Lord and his anointed. God has put you in this place. So I'm not going to personally attack you. I'm not going to bring revenge on you. I'm not going to retaliate. I'm going to follow you. God has put you here. And King Saul started crying and said, oh, David, you know, you're a better man than I. You're so much better than I. I'll, I'll, re- I'll receive you back, essentially. Not too long after that, in fact, you just go two more chapters, you find out that David is again on the run from Saul because Saul's trying to kill him again. This continued, by the way, throughout David's life until Saul finally died. Saul continued to try to persecute and kill him. At one point, Saul was hiding, was basically sleeping in a tent, and David and his men were there, and David snuck into the tent and took the spear from Saul, his spear, and took a water jug and waited outside. When Saul got up in the morning, he presented him to him and said, See, I could have killed you again, but I didn't kill you. That's not what I'm about. Why do you continue to come after me? All I'm trying to do is what's right for my country. Why can't you deal with that? Saul cried again, I'm sorry, oh, forgive me, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and then continued to pursue and try to kill David because David was threatening Saul's power. But what David never did in response was retaliate. He never sought revenge. He had multiple occasions to kill him, and he didn't do it. He pursued peace with Saul over and over and over again. Third, we are to do good to our enemies. We are to do good to our enemies. Look at verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him, actively doing good. Feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You see, we instinctively want to pay back for what someone has done to us. We want revenge, we desire vindication and justice when wrongs have been done to us. We desire it. And guess what? The the desire for vindication, the desire for vengeance is not a wrong desire. It's just not your place to carry it out. How do I know that? Look at what he says in verse 20. I'm sorry, verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. You don't do it. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Revenge is not always wrong. It is always wrong for you to carry out. It is not wrong for God to carry it out, nor is it wrong in Romans chapter 13 for the state to carry it out. It is always wrong for you as an individual to carry it out. In fact, in more than one place, we see people praying for vindication, for God's vengeance. In Luke chapter 18, there is a widow who keeps coming and knocking on the judge's door and asking for something, and eventually she gets it. She wants vindication. She eventually gets it. Jesus says, go ahead and keep praying. Keep asking. I will not deny you. I will eventually return and vindicate you. In other words, pray for vindication. That's okay, Jesus says. You should be praying for it. When my people, he says, cry out to me day and night, then I will return. That's what he says. In Revelation chapter 6, there are people who are in the throne room of God in heaven, and they're praying. And you know what they keep praying? How long, O Lord, till you avenge our blood? How long? 
How long? See, it's wrong to think it's your job as an individual to carry out vengeance. However, however, it is not necessarily a wrong desire to see sin vindicated and to see vengeance carried out. You want justice. Justice is a good thing. God is just. It's good. However, you're not the bringer of justice. God is. The state is. So what's your calling? Your calling is to seek the good of your enemies. Your calling is to act kindly toward them. Your calling is to speak well of them. Your calling is to pray for their salvation. That is a high calling. As Paul says, we're not to be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. And you might say to me, this seems impossible. It seems impossible for me to pray for the salvation of my enemies. It seems impossible for me to act kindly toward them. It seems impossible for me to seek their good, to speak well of them. It seems impossible for me to do all that. And at the same time, at the same time, for me to pray, you know, to want justice and vindication. How do I love my enemy when my heart is hardening toward them? Second part you might object to is, how do I desire someone's salvation and desire justice from God at the same time? How's that possible? Well, the answer to both questions is the same answer. You know what it is? Trust him who judges justly as Jesus did and look to the cross. You see, if this person repents, your enemy repents and turns to Christ, then vengeance for their sins against you has been carried out on Jesus. Hear that? Vengeance has been carried out. Justice has occurred on Jesus. And if they don't repent, they don't turn to Christ, then they will suffer God's wrath. Well, you might respond, why should I be content with my enemy's punishment being put on Jesus? Well, how about because your punishment was put on Jesus? See, this is really the key to the whole sermon. It really is the point I made at the beginning. Until we understand God's love for his enemies displayed on the cross, we will never love our enemies as we're called to. But when we understand the sinfulness of our own sin and the graciousness of God's grace to us, we then know how loving our enemies is the rational response to the mercies of God. Let me pray. Father, we ask for you to, to help us be the kind of people who can, in fact, pray for our enemies, love them, act kindly toward them, seek their good, speak well of them, bless and not curse them. Father, we, we ask that as we do so, you would soften our hearts so that we would be able to do this well, so we'd be able to seek peace. You toughen our skin so we can take the insults without seeking retaliation. Father, that you would help us to be a people who both desire your justice and desire to see that justice carried out on your Son and not on our enemies, that they would turn to you and be saved that they would not suffer eternally in hell, but they would be saved and, saved and forgiven and reconciled to you. Father, we pray that we would seek both to love our enemies, to do good to them, to pray for them, 
to see them saved at the same time, Father, that we would rejoice in at the same time not only their salvation, but we would rejoice in vengeance from you, justice from you, as you execute it through the state and as you execute it through eternal hell and as you execute it, hopefully in the case of those we're praying for, Father, as you execute it on Jesus at the cross. Pray that you would help us to trust you, to love our enemies, to be children, to be sons of our Father who's in heaven. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.